unattractive pleasure of blaming somebody else for my failure. I, however, have to tell you in all seriousness that I do repent before God for a very, very careless statement. And I am thankful for Raleigh, my best, <laughs> my best listener when it comes to those things, a precious brother. And I'm just grateful for him and the Lord. And he pointed out that, first of all, if it's wrong to tell God something in prayer that he knows, does that mean we can only tell God what he doesn't know? <laughs> oh. So I, I, uh, I ask your forgiveness for that, that Queen Mary size gap. That was carelessness uh, in the nth degree, and please forgive me. And I should have tried to be more, I should have been more careful, not try to be more careful, I should have been more careful in saying that what I was referencing were prayers that are like the Pharisees, uh, especially prayers that announce to God one's own accomplishments or prayers that tell God things that may not necessarily be true, such as, uh, Lord, I thank you, you know, that you're going to heal Mrs. Smith, or I thank you, Lord, that you know Mr. Jones loves you. Um, we don't always know those things. And uh, that I had a much narrower focus than my careless words uh, would have indicated, and I'm grateful to that. And then I might add that uh, thanks be unto God for good listening. Uh, there were a number of you that one way or another uh, indicated uh, a similar distress. And then my wife came. <laughs> and see, I'm not like George. Uh, I don't... Uh, stand in fear and trembling. I'm, I'm too crass. I'm not sensitive enough. Uh, George Maladin said this the other night. But when I see Barbara approach, <laughs> and with a certain look on her face, where she tells me something that I suspect she already is going to tell me, that's, of course, good for the soul, and I don't like it because it's painful, but it's true. But uh, I'm, in fact, doing a lousy job of following my outline. She, I'm condensing. And, um, <laughs> and so I'm going to try to explain something. Um, and that is that... Where is the outline? Oh, here it is. Um, that I tried to be honest with you, first of all, there's the rest of it. Um, I tried to be honest with you in saying that I was switching one and two. Remember that? And then today I admittedly did go over some stuff on the sufficiency of Scripture, but I believe that by the end of this hour, this may show how, what a naive sap I am, but uh, uh, I believe by the end of the hour I'm actually going to get into church separation, <laughs> the issue of church separation. So... Uh, but I do have to say a few other things. Well, well let me back up. Uh, one other thing that uh, somebody else mentioned, which I should have thought of, but there is some question uh, that Elizabeth here raised, if uh, Kenneth Copeland only uh, ministers to single people, because obviously any married person knows their spouse isn't divine. <laughs> and I thought that was a helpful insight. <laughs> so... Um, uh, with, with that important bit of exegesis, uh, not of scripture, of my comments. Um, I would like to then uh, look at, in, in winding up the first three, I just want to read for you without much, well, I shouldn't say much discussion. I never follow all those sort of announcements. I just want to read for you uh, about a dozen, no, ten, ten uh, thoughts I have here on this business of truth and, and the idea of its sufficiency before we move on to the idea of separation. These are not in any particularly uh, uh, crucial order, nor am I willing to um, suggest the list is exhaustive, but I do believe it touches uh, on a number of issues we've raised here by way of uh, somewhat tying them up. I would then submit that our Reformed ancestors did in fact believe that there was knowable truth and further, that quite ordinary people could know it if properly taught and shepherded. That was not something reserved for the intellectual or ecclesiastical elite. It used to be said in Scotland, 
that a housewife or a fishmonger could debate theology with the best of the cardinals of the church because they were so grounded in the scripture. It's after the Reformation. Our Reformation ancestors did in fact believe that the only and ultimate source of knowable propositional truth was the Bible, Revelation. In the third place I submit our Reformation forebears believed that biblical truth was objectively unchanging and forever and always relevant for believers of every age. It didn't have to be modern, modified with modern insights. Fourthly, I submit our Reformation forebears believed there was an objective hermeneutic for interpreting the Bible. That's a system of interpretation. And that the Bible itself establishes its own rules and standards for the proper interpretation of its own contents. The Bible is not only externally self-sufficient, it is internally self-sufficient in that interpretive and then uh, subsequently applicatory sense. Our Reformation forebears believed that every text had an objective, unchanging, and intended meaning for every text. That's a bit redundant, intended. And in the vast majority of texts, that intended meaning was and is plain. That the number of truly obscure texts are small and that when people come up with obscure meanings for texts that's a real warning sign our reformation forebears believed that the task of responsible exegesis was to provide for God's people and that included other listeners that weren't among the elect nevertheless a clear expression of the plain intended meaning of one or more chosen texts our Reformation ancestors understood that subjective thinking and especially emotion and emotional thought was inferior to objective truth. Inferior to objective truth. And that the former should never judge the latter, but that the latter should always judge the former. To put it another way, experience is never the best teacher. That's a platitude. You've heard it many times. Experience is the best teacher, people say. Not true. The Word of God applied sovereignly and supernaturally by the Holy Spirit in the soul of believers is the best teacher. Our forefathers in the Reformation believed that the grand subject of Scripture is God and not man. And in particular, God the Son and the redemption he's accomplished and applied to his elect people. I submit that our Reformation ancestors understood that one's thought life, for good or evil, profoundly influences one's behavior, and that it is impossible to live a godly life in a fallen, complicated world without a clear grasp of the redemptive truths set forth in God's Word, including truths such as the, original, the origin of life, the state of man before and after the fall, the duties God requires of man, but most especially and pointedly, man's nature and the nature and person and works of God in redemption, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. Our ancestors knew and rejoiced over the truth that theology is the queen of the sciences and that without theology it is impossible for man to properly understand God. Man himself or the world in which we live or how to worship and serve and walk with God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. I think we need to be willing to zealously and fervently and warmly hold to that. And I want to then close one other loop that came up in the discussion afterwards. And that is that if we have truth without the Spirit, that's when you get cold orthodoxy. But if you have the spirit without the truth, that's when you get neither truth nor spirit in the end. And I believe the spirit does not minister without the truth. And I believe that when we worship in spirit and in truth, you have that marvelous dynamic of the Holy Spirit applying, he first quickens us unto belief and repentance and then begins that marvelous process of sanctification of applying the word. So we get the John 17, 17 
concept there then that we're sanctified through the truth not just uh, received cognitively but thought through and with the grace of God and the work of the Spirit uh, applied beyond that cornerstone or centerpiece of worship applied to the rest of our lives so much so for those first three I am willing to pick up tag ends and probably will as we move on now I want to get onto the issue of separation and I want to take you first of all to 1 Corinthians and let us see if we can establish with a degree of confidence did I say 1 Corinthians? there's that STD stuff again let's try 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 6 beginning with verse 14 do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God just as God said I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people therefore come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Almighty I believe there aren't a whole lot of passages in Scripture that are any more incisively razor-edged than this one in terms of not merely giving the concept, the commandment, but then requiring somewhere a clear application. Now, having said that, I think the concept is sharp. I will admit to you, and I think we all have to honestly admit, that it isn't always easy to know at what point you apply this. And I believe the history of the OPC itself indicates that. I think one can look at the daisy chain of events that led up to the formation of the OPC in 1936 and the formation of Westminster Seminary in 1929. And the unbelief that led up to that was in place for decades, although it was growing but it was in place for decades before those separation events took place. And I have found it very helpful at this point in my life at age 55, born the same year as the OPC. (laughs) That's an aside. Uh, But I like it. But uh, to go back in a little book that's been reprinted by a fellow by the name of Edwin Ryan, and there were copies at uh, Westminster, I mean, Let's try again. There were copies at the General Assembly, and I grabbed one up. And they're on the table, are they? Thank you. Uh, If you're at all interested in that sequence of events, I think it's just fascinating. And it's interesting. Ryan himself went back into the the, uh, large Presbyterian church, which I think sort of muddied the waters in terms of the book he had written. But the fact is that Machen and these other men, who certainly uh, probably would qualify as intellectual giants compared to us chipmunks among elephants intellectually uh, that uh, uh, he didn't have it just all laid out and there had to be some events that brought uh, them to the place where the decision was made to first of all establish a different seminary almost said cemetery and that's a Freudian slip that's a bad illusion forget the above Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that uh, uh, when it came to the actual formation of the church, what was an, what I would call an easy to identify event was the event where uh, the ministers who had supported the uh, board of the independent board of foreign missions were cast out 
of the, uh, the United Presbyterian Church. And so today, I believe we're facing the same sort of, of uh, situations in other ways. Uh, I think, for instance, uh, my heart goes out to the people in the Christian Reformed Church right now because I believe they're really uh, in the thick of that agony. Uh, and it's a terrible problem uh, for people who have uh, not themselves been born and raised in the church, but their fathers and their fathers before them. And yet, this is an old concept. And if you will turn with me, please, to Psalm 1, which, of course, is approximately 3,000 years old. And if you take the premise, which I think is, is a supportable premise, that Psalm 1 is, in a sense is like the introduction to a book. It's, it's a psalm in which most of the great themes in the book of Psalm are found in seed form in Psalm 1. And uh, if you hold to that premise, which as I say, I'm personally persuaded has some validity, notice what the very first words of that great book of praise are. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Beloved, that's a text of separation. That is a text that says that one of the premier marks of a blessed man, a citizen of the kingdom, is that he doesn't mess around any more than he absolutely has to with wicked behavior, with wicked lifestyles, and with wicked thinking there is obviously a conscious and conspicuous separation from the ways of the world taught in Psalm 1. And of course it isn't just the negative because you've got that marvelous verse 2 which for the last 20 years has intrigued me as to uh, uh, all of the implications of it. But it's both, uh, it's both a perspective and then an activity uh, upon that perspective to wit the perspective of delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating in it day and night. So you see, that's the flip side of that separation thing. It's not just you don't involve the, the uh, involve yourself with the wicked, you separate, and then you sort of stand and look at a blank metaphysical wall for the rest of your life. Um, that's not what, what this is a call to. It's a call to a very uh, proactive involvement with the Word of God, and not just as an observer, but as a participant in its unfolding in the mind of each spirit blessed believer. But there is that idea of separation. And then if you think back to uh, the history of redemption in the early church, uh, is there separation when God calls Abraham out of Terran and Ur of the Chaldees? There's a separation there, isn't there? And is there a separation when Abraham is in Canaan and yet he hasn't inherited tactically, if you will? He's there, but he hasn't got, he hasn't got the title and deed to the property. Is there a separation when the Jews are brought out of Egypt? You better believe there's a separation, isn't there? Is there a separation during the flood? You don't need a PhD in logic to figure that one out. <laughs> There's separation. And then I submit that uh, uh, we get to the New Testament, we don't find any change in that theme. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And this is one of those uh, sort of little ones I like to look at and ponder. Uh, I think it's, there's some value in meditating on it. Uh, as you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, would you uh, be willing to uh, concede without my having to read a lot of it? This is the great chapter on the resurrection of the dead and the linking of the resurrection of Christ with the resurrection of believers and the fact it's such a tight linkage that Paul says, if you don't believe the resurrection of the dead, you really don't believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you deny the resurrection of the dead, uh, you're going to, whether you realize it or not, you're also denying the resurrection of Christ. And he makes an amazing, like, tight connection there. And then, uh, essentially, in the middle of the chapter, he says something that, at first blush, looks like a real non sequitur of the first water. Uh, suddenly, bing, he says, verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And then he goes right back to the issue of the resurrection. 
Have you ever wondered if, you, if the text has interested you? Why do you suppose he put that in there at that particular point? In the middle of this, this uh, tremendous theological discourse, Paul sticks that warning in. And he says, I don't want you to be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And I ask you, first of all, do you believe that? As you sit here today, do you believe evil people can influence good people for evil? Good, I'm using in quotes at this point. I don't think you have to be much of an observer of the human scene to see that our country has had two and three whole generations in great measure ruined because of the influence of evil people. You just have to look at somebody like Timothy O'Leary, the guru of the drug culture, to see the incredible influence one evil thinker can have on gullible sheep. And so Paul is right on target when he points out that there's a dynamic influence that evil people have on good, but for, on, on the non-evil, if you will, in this, in this more superficial sense, but for the grace of God. And so I propose to you at least an explanation of the question I raised earlier, that when Paul points out that if you deny the resurrection of the dead, whether you realize it or not, you're also denying the resurrection of Christ, he has given us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a clue as to how infinitely deadly is the embracing of doubt. How perilous is the toleration of unbelief, even when it seems to be in an innocuous or apparently unimportant or unharmful area. Now I'm going to push this one right to the edge of the envelope. I believe that if we've got the eyes to see it, there's an inference here that you can't snip out part of Scripture and not have the rest fall later, if not sooner. That there is a unity of doctrine that is as perfect as the unity of the Godhead and Jesus Christ is the living incarnate embodiment of the theological and hence intellectually honest and spiritually consistent conceptual universe that the Bible flawlessly reflects. And so you and I then need to understand that when the Bible itself warns us about the influence of the world, we need to take that seriously. Now I propose to you something else, and that is that if you look in Scripture at the original idea of holiness, the idea of separation from sin and corruption is writ large. You go right back to uh, the beginning of Scripture. We already have the idea of the separation of the covenant line, the believing line, and the unbelieving line. And at the very end of Scripture, what is one of the reasons why the unrepentant are in hell, if not the premier reason? Beloved, isn't it the fact that a thrice holy God cannot tolerate corruption in his presence? And then lest you be tempted, or I be tempted to look at it only with respect to them, let's bring it closer to home. Is it true or not true? that it is not sufficient to have the, the appeasement and reconciliation of the wrath and enmity of God against our sins in order to stand in his presence. Do we not also have to have the righteousness of Christ or we're unfit to stand before an infinitely holy God in a light that no man can look unto and not be consumed? And so, beloved, if I really believe that, if you and I really somewhere believe that there is such a thing as a call to separation, such as we read in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians six, then somewhere it seems to me, if we're not playing games and mocking God, we've got to begin to think through the implications of that in our life in general and the church in particular and most particularly in worship. I submit 
that separation from the world's bastardization of worship is one of our highest callings. Now I'll admit something, you say, to show you how difficult it is in some respects, uh, because it isn't easy to perfectly do this. We don't have the wisdom. We need God's grace in this. But not only must we be separate from the world's ideas and the theology that we teach, but I believe we've got to be separate even in our methodology as well as theology. Because how we do what we do is important to God as well as what we do what we do and the reasons for what we do what we do. And so, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, God tells us that he who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, becomes an abomination. And that's clearly saying that God cares about the motivational you and me when we pray. But pushing it a step further, let's take an easier to identify one. What about the issue of methodologies? Now, I have said that one of the uh, techniques that the modern apostate church or incrementally apostatizing churches are using to get people in is to entertain them. And one of the ways of entertainment is multimedia. Pictures are something we Americans like. I don't know if you realize it or not, but before the end of World War II, and when we still had, I guess, a few shards of philosophical pizzazz even in the body politic, you remember uh, in 1939, Life magazine came out on November 11th, the first issue. And before the end of the war, some astute observer of the American scene had observed one reason Life magazine did so well in America is we like pictures. And as you know, Life was a companion magazine to Time. And one wag put it that um, Life is the magazine for people who can't read and Time was the magazine for people who can't think. <laughs> and uh, I found myself over the years inclined to agree largely with that. But the fact is that in, when we have worship services and we use these wonderful technologies of the uh, three-dimensional uh, pictures or, or multi-screened uh, uh, auditoria with uh, uh, overlapping images and then if there's music to go with it and so on. I mean, we're into, into just raw uh, technological stimulation. Now, most of us churches, and I guess this is a blessing, you know, we, we little inconspicuous, poverty-stricken OPC churches, we can't afford that kind of stuff, you know. I mean, that takes megabucks, and I guess that's wonderful uh, that we can't afford it. But I submit that even in the OPC, there are times when uh, I think in some measure, and thank God I don't think uh, a great deal, but sometimes we've aped that unbelieving church, uh, the media church and so on a little bit. And here comes the confession now. I have reached such a place of antipathy toward entertainment genres uh, that even when it's something that is not syrupy or subjective, I still automatically twitch when an overhead projector is turned on. <laughs> now, Alan, don't stop putting hymns up. And that one you put this morning that's been included in the retreat was, was a great hymn, and I enjoyed seeing it. And please, you don't have to agonize if this is an insidious and sleazy way of getting back at you. It's not, Alan. <laughs> 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 I'm glad Alan would never think that. But uh, that may only reflect my enculturated backwardness and insidious tendencies toward recidivism in things technological. But I want you to know that on the other hand, Andy keeps working at me uh, to, to not be technologically paranoid. And so there has to be that balance. Yes? Are you thinking reactively? Very much so. <laughs> And, and that, in fact, Alan, is why I said it's a confession, because obviously overhead projectors are not intrinsically evil. That's the, if I think they're intrinsically evil, that's the same idiocy as went on in Prohibition, where we assume a chemical is, insidi is, is incipiently or intrinsically evil. But I'm just simply pointing out that as a result of having 
for years been thinking about this issue of worship that, and seeing uh, media technology used as a substitute for substance that even when it's used properly, I still, there's just that momentary twitch. You know, I say, it's all right, Bob, it's all right. There's <laughs> not going to be heresy. <laughs> but I suppose I wouldn't twitch like that if I weren't, weren't convinced that there has to be that continual guard going on uh, against subversion. And now let me tell you just a little bit about subversion. I would propose to you that almost never is subversion or seduction in one great swell foop, in one great step. That seduction almost always occurs in little, tiny, unrecognized, incremental steps, no one of which may be even discernibly evil. But after a period of time, one day you look back, you look back, and suddenly it hits you. Now, a couple of illustrations. First of all, in 2 Timothy 3. And now comes a commercial. While you're turning to 2 Timothy 3, I want to encourage you to consider getting all the tapes from the June Institute. There was some incredibly good stuff there. And uh, one of the things that was good, I think, were some uh, excellent teaching on this problem of of a good self-image and uh, uh, having uh, self-love and so on. But if you'll notice in in, uh, 2 Timothy 3, Paul gives a frightening list of the uh, characteristics of the ungodly in the last days. And he says that men will be lovers of themselves. Oh, verse 2. Well, verse 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy 3, right? Thank you, thank you. more STD. Um, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, or lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I submit every single one of those characteristics in spades describes the United States today in our culture. But look what's at the beginning of the list. Lovers of self. And then look what's at the end of the list. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And of course, he's referring to the redemptive, sanctifying power of the gospel and the word. Now, if you and I, as members of the redeemed of Jesus Christ, are to be in the world, let's see if we can get one thing straight this morning that you are not going to have, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be separate and painless. Now, if you walk away this morning and you don't get anything else out of this, if you've got that, you've got your teeth into something that's powerful. You can't be separated and never have any pain. There is going to be some pain. And I love the honesty of Jesus Christ when he said, don't think, I quoted this earlier, don't think that I've come to bring peace but a sword and to set husband against wife, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He gives a list of of, uh, typical separations there. And on another occasion he said, before you enter the kingdom, sit down and count the cost. And I believe as part of the preaching of cheap grace, we also want one that's a cheap kingdom for which there's no cost. Because let me assure you, paradigm number one, I mean axiom number one, axiom number one, if you stand for Jesus Christ, you will be misunderstood. Welcome to the club. That's one of the first tickets of membership. You will be misunderstood, not only by the crass world, but also the pseudo-church, or the false church, or the dying church, or the apostatizing church. 
Separation will be misunderstood. Now, let me push the envelope a little further. What right now is the most politically correct issue of all in America, bar none? You can say it in one word. It's a terrible P word. You know what that is? Pluralism, that is the philosophy that every religious and preferential and sexual and every other kind of variant is acceptable, every single one, except Christocentric life and worship. That's why in the chaplain corps of the military services, if you use the name of Christ in public prayer, I guarantee you, you will get heat big time. I know from a lot of personal experience. The fact is that pluralism is a doctrine of indiscriminate acceptance of everything except that which is exclusive. Now when you put pluralism together with John 14.6, you have a nuclear explosion in the making. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me. Pluralism says everybody's wonderful and every idea is wonderful, even though some are more wonderful than others and some are more equal than others. The ones that are a little more equal than others are the ones that happen to be held by the ruling elite. But everybody's wonderful except those Christians. And I'm going to tell you, if you think we've had it tough in the past 30 years, I believe that's just the hors d'oeuvres of the banquet of suffering that's coming down the pike unless God brings an incredible awakening in the United States. And I believe that in the Church of Jesus Christ we've been so suckered by the thinking of the world that many, even in the Reformed churches, believe we shouldn't really have to suffer. And if I can use as a litmus test of that thinking, one of the things I would say is when people ask me when a loved one is dying, they say, well, why should we have to suffer this? If God, if God is so loving, why does he make me do this? And I say, have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever opened to the epistle of 1 Peter? Have you ever read Hebrews 12? Have you ever read the Psalms? I mean, have you ever read anything? Because that's a given. That is an absolute given. And let's go to see that. Second, or 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a non-negotiable for the, for the uh, visible church for the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning with verse 18. Verse 18. By the way, Jenny, I don't care if you walk, you know, there's no TV camera on. You don't have to crawl your hands and knees on the floor if you don't want to. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. Now, <laughs> verse 18 of 1 Peter. Chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Now, did you get that? Let me read that again. This finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, you've got to have the right motive, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering, and then comes the yuck word, unjustly. The Americans hate that. Now, along with the criteria of something isn't fun, the equivalent criteria for many young people is, well, it isn't fair. And in our household, uh, whatever else we have in the way of inept teaching and shepherding, by yours truly, I do believe God finally gave me progress in getting across to the offspring of the next generation, that when they say something isn't fair in the Needham household, they're really barking up a very dead tree if they think they're going to elicit any sympathy from their cruel father. One of the things I like to point out to people when they say that is I personally am so thankful God isn't fair. I praise God every day he isn't fair because being fair means getting what you deserve. And every one of us deserves hell forever. 
you might try thanking God that he isn't fair in the American sense. Sometimes you're inclined to do so. And then he goes on in verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Now that's an easy one, isn't it? You know, if you get some smack, uh, sociological or physical smack at the side of the head, if you've done something wrong and you accept it kind of graciously, no big deal, you deserve this. But, but, well, there's one of those scriptural buts in there. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. There's the second time you get the idea of a favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose if you feel like it. <laughs> Is that what he says? He says you've been called for this purpose. So I want to tell you, if you believe today that you are called for the purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. And if you believe that, and when the occasion comes that you have to follow in those footsteps of suffering, I want to tell you that is going to separate you from the world. Big time. Big time. That is going to separate you. And in fact, I would like to push the envelope still further to propose that somewhere we need to come out of you know, the warm, syrupy sentimentality of la-la land that was normative for a hundred years where we really believed you know, that the advance of science was the final embracing of Christianity and, and they know that the world was really coming to the millennium and everything was wonderful. We believed that until World War I, by and large. But I submit we need to be more honest. Beloved, I do not believe it's possible to show uh, or demonstrate a single element of biblical Christianity that is not unnatural as far as the world considers what's normative. To put it another way, I believe absolutely every single element of biblical Christianity runs counter to our natural instincts and the ways of the world. Now that's separating. I mean, that's separating conceptually before you ever do anything outside if you really realize that. Can you show me anything in Christianity that agrees with the thinking of the world. And I don't know of any. Maybe some of you do. Maybe, maybe Raleigh will come up afterwards and say, have you considered? And then I'll have to repent tomorrow morning. That's all right. I need to correct it. I need to correct it if it's wrong. But in about 16 years of trying to think of something, I have not been successful. And so you and I then, I believe, need to recognize that Jesus Christ really meant business when he sat down with his apostles at that Last Supper and he addressed this subject. Let's go over to John 15. That's, of course, part of the Last Supper discourse. John 15. Beginning with verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Now verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you believe that? Even if it isn't always overtly expressed, do you believe the world hates you if you are a regenerate believer, an adopted son or daughter of the living God? Do you believe that the more radiant the evidence of Christ is in your life, the more you are odious to the world and a savor of death unto death to those who are perishing? Remember this word I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
First John chapter two. First John chapter two. Beginning with verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that's separation, isn't it? And that is separation with a capital S. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, there's that word pride, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so not only did Christ say, but John speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you can't have it both ways. You can't love the world and you can't love the kingdom. Did Jesus say no man can serve two masters in Matthew 6? For either he will love the one and hate the other or hold the one and despise the other. And I believe that we need to return to that reformation willingness to be different. To be different. I was told the other day from a source I choose not to mention that a paradigm of my backwardness, social backwardness, is the fact that not only do I hate to throw away any still usable clothes, but that I actually wear polyester, oh yuck, (laughs) bell-bottom pants. And that the failure to shuck them into the garbage is an evidence of my failure to appreciate what's in. I realized about 30 years ago, I've always been in when others are out. And in high school, I didn't figure out what was in until I had graduated from college. But I want to assure you that God has called us not to be seduced by the fashions of the world. Now, over in Hebrews 7, we get another insight into this. And no less a person than Jesus Christ himself, in this great, great epistle that reflects the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, isn't that beautiful? Holy, innocent, undefiled. That describes his character, does it not? Those three, those three adjectives. And then notice the fourth one. Separated from sinners. Separated from sinners. And the fifth one, exalted above the heavens. So you have three that deal with his character and two that deal with his situation or his office, his exaltation, so on, his condition, if you will. And separation is one of the hallmarks of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I propose to you that this theme of separation is so profound that the very last thoughts of Scripture focus on the idea of separation. Not the least of which, and this may rank as the all-time understatement ever to issue from my hyperbolic mouth, and that is that I believe it's difficult to find in all of the thoughts of mankind any greater separation than the separation between hell and heaven. I mean, that you can write separation over the door of both of those places. One for glory and one for cursing. And the fact is that Jesus Christ 
has called you and me to be unlike the world in the way that we behave both both individually and separately. Let's, I think we've got what, how much, many minutes, Len, have I got? Ten minutes. Ooh, goody. Um, let me focus then, by way of some application, on some expressions of that separation in the way that we think. First of all, I would like to take you over to a passage that at CCEF is part of, uh, I guess you could say, what's written over the door, uh, doorposts of CCEF, Matthew 18. This text we come back to over and over again in our dealing with people. And while you're turning there, here's part of my... uh, commercial for those tapes from CCF. Jay Adams did a fabulous hour on church discipline. It was beautiful. And I was just amazed he got so much into one hour. But uh, one of the things he dealt with, of course, was Matthew 18. You just can't, can't get away from it. Verse 15. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Jay very properly pointed out there's one step before the verse 15 step, and that's, of course, the step of self-admonition or self-confrontation, where by the work of the Spirit and the Word, uh, we actually see the sin and repent of it before anybody has to say anything to us. But my purpose now is not to get into the Matthew 18 dynamic, but to get into the separation from the world that this text highlights in a very down-to-earth applicatory way. Would you be willing to concede right now that we are born with a natural instinct that we don't like what somebody says or does, we tell somebody else about it? Would you concede that? Would you concede that even in Christian homes, even when we have parents that pray for us, we still are naturally and instinctively inclined to tell somebody, anybody, other than the person with whom we have to do? For instance, if dad is a stern disciplinarian, dad has done something we think is unfair, to whom are we inclined to run? Mom. Yes, mom. And that was not meant to be said disrespectfully. But the point is that it's woven into the woof and warp of our natural estate to not want to have to go through that unpleasantness of going to an individual and dealing with a subject that might involve some correction or rebuke or whatever for us, true or false. I would like to ask you just to ponder for a minute how much grief in our churches could be eliminated if every single person was profoundly, consciously, conspicuously committed to the principle that if you have a problem with an individual, you go to that individual, F-I-R-S-T. You don't even talk to your spouse about it, if it's other than your spouse. You go to that individual first. Can you imagine what that would do, just that one that one behavior in our churches. And I have learned through the years as a slow learner, I mean, honestly, at age 55, I marvel at God's patience. Sometimes there is, it takes me 20 years to get an idea through my thick head. And it's only been, I guess, in about the last 15 years that it began to dawn on me some of the ramifications of this. I had a few clues before coming in the Navy. But it's really relatively, just I guess a decade and a half, that it began to just impact me. The incredible grief in our churches because we will willingly talk to anybody but that person with whom we've got the problem. And I believe that if that were not the case, the history of the church in America would be so different that none of us can comprehend what it would be like. Because the first time that somebody in in a... worship service in a congregation heard a minister say something slightly off base 
Can you imagine what would have been the effect if that individual had gone and said to that minister, Pastor, I have a real problem with what you say. That didn't sound biblical. And please show me that it's biblical or we've got to talk about it. And through the years, I've said so many thousands of times, I have no clue how many. When people have complained to me about something, I say to them, but have you gone to that individual first? And I'll bet 99 point something percent of the time, the answer is no. No. Now, there's a lot of other ways that I believe that we exhibit either a humble willingness to be separate or we show our lust to be like the world. Do you remember the issue that was mentioned in the uh, earlier passage we read about the pride of life as one of the marks of the world in the Corinthian passage? Pride of life. And then yesterday I was talking about pride. Now I would like to ask you, because I agree with George, I believe that when, when we get into a lot of litigiousness and harshness and so on, unwillingness to admit we're wrong, that one of the elements of that is just plain, ugly, vile pride. Now let me ask you, does the world glorify humility? Number one. Do you know any instance where the world really exalts true humility, beloved? Number two, can you define it? See, I submit if you can't define it, you don't even really know what it is. Would anybody like to take a crack at defining humility? There's, I think, several good definitions. Mrs. Tuggy? I would say that that's a consequence of humility. That ought to be a result of true as opposed to phony humility, but that doesn't define it. And incidentally, and this is not to put you on the spot, but if you listen to most Americans define a word, they'll almost never give you an objective definition. They'll nearly always give you an expression of what it does or its effect. That's just a little passing observation to titillate you if you're bored. <laughs> yes, Betty. I submitted that was an exhibition of God-given humility, or to put it another way, that's a beautiful example of humility, but you didn't define it. You gave an example of it. Elise, yes. How about feeling that you realizing others Now I think we're starting to get warm. Did you hear her definition? Realizing our position before God apart from Christ. I think you're hitting pay dirt now. Yes. Uh, is it Pat that had her hand up? Yeah. I think that's part of the package. See, I believe you can't, you and I cannot really understand our true estate without also understanding God's estate. And in a sense, the most concise reduction of humility I've ever been able to come up with is simply across-the-board honesty about ourselves in the light of God's Word. Honesty about our true condition. I think that's the heart of it. Am I willing to admit what I really am? Now, let's make it real practical. And I'll take another risk. What's one of the hardest things for us husbands to do with our wives? What's one of the hardest things on the face of the earth, guys? I think I hear some target rumble. To say those three words to our wives, I was wrong. Skip. <laughs> He's right. He's right. Because if your wife says something to you 
And in spite of all that pride, you finally force out the words. You are right. And I know this from personal experience. Then it's another Mount Everest to cross to look in the beady eyes of your spouse. And they always look beady when they're right and you're wrong. <laughs> and to say, oh, God have mercy on us. You were right. You were right. Now, on the other hand, and I'm indebted to George Scipioni for this insight, which had never occurred to me until I heard him say it, which I guess was something about this slow learner stuff. But if, as a husband, I am always right, then what's the implication for my wife? She's always wrong. And if I truly believe she's always wrong, what does that say about my judgment in marrying her? There's a little chink in the armor. You see, God doesn't give us any squeak-by room on that, does he? There's no room, there's no place for slippage in this one. Okay, where is the exact border? And the question's been raised about Moses. Well, let's see if we can move into Moses with one quick intermediate step. Did Moses, as the meekest of all men, have it wired together with his wife? Did he? No, no. When it came to his wife, uh, God meets him by the inn on the way back to Egypt. God's ready to slay him because he's been derelict in his family responsibilities. And Zipporah circumcises the two boys, throws the foreskins at his feet, and says what may be one of the more sarcastic one-liners in the Old Testament, you're a bloody husband to me. I think the British would probably appreciate that more than we would. <laughs> but the fact is, the fact is, she nailed him dead to rights on his sin of omission, didn't she? Now she did. So now we've got this problem. Moses is meek. First of all, was he perfectly meek? No, no. So we've got to allow there were imperfections in his meekness. Now secondly, which comes kind of ties to this issue of humility, would you be willing to concede that in America we regard humility as weakness, by and large? If you concede that, then I think you get some sense of the dimension of the problem. In fact, about the only places I've ever seen humility mentioned in public is at Democratic and Republican conventions. <laughs> when Southern senators get up and with a great swelling of their overfed breast usually announce something like this, my fellow citizens, I'm so humble to be here. And then of course it gets worse and goes downhill from there. <laughs> but, but, uh, but other than that, you don't hear it mentioned much. Well, the fact is that humility does not mean being an obsequious doormat for people to wipe their metaphysical shoes upon your emotional face with. The with part was dreadful grammar. And I submit that here's an amazing paradox the world doesn't understand. The more humble you are, the more bold you'll be. And I believe Moses was bold. And I believe when he went down and he poked all those Israelites through with the sword that were busy orging around the golden calf, that's eh, pretty bold, you know at least in my opinion, maybe not yours. And so I submit that if you go back to the idea that uh, the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion, that the more you're willing to be obvious with your sin, I mean to be honest about your sins, the less you've got to cover up. Isn't that right? And you see, none of us are smart enough to cover up and defend ourselves perfectly. We're all too stupid for that. And so if you choose that route, you're going to consume every drop of your best intellectual and emotional energies in the cover-up. So you're vulnerable. And so you've got to put up a false front. You've got to be puffed up and, and keep a, a braggadocio exterior to hide the trembling mouse interior. But 
when you're honest, and if somebody says you're a sinner, you look them right in the eye and say, yes, and Jesus has forgiven me, and I know my sins are nailed to the cross, and I have the righteousness of Christ, and I can take no credit for it, but that he's given it to me, and the word has declared that, and I know that whether I'm mad, sad, glad, happy, elated, depressed, or whatever, then I want to tell you that will give you a boldness that is free from the curse of pride. That's where holy boldness comes from, but you've got to start with that repentance, humility, or you'll never know the boldness of Jesus Christ. And that's why I think the honesty thing is so important. And so I submit that, that Moses in great measure had that. And when he stood in front of Pharaoh, he didn't stand there with any pretension. And one of the ultimate marks of his boldness is he gave God the glory. He didn't take any for himself. And I believe that was part of his righteous meekness because he didn't grab any of the credit for himself. Well, Obaniah. Hmm, timekeeper, you've given me the sign. I am. Yes, Ellery. I guess I'll have to withdraw my definition of humility, which is the art of looking ashamed while saying nice things about yourself. I think you better withdraw that definition. <laughs> the art of looking ashamed while you draw, say nice things about yourself. I think that, that's a good definition of the world's notion of humility. Let's pray. Lord God, dismiss us, please, with your sovereign, undeserved, and gracious blessing. We ask it in the name of him who was separate, holy, harmless, and undefiled, even Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. Amen. You are dismissed. Of course, you didn't get to elaborate on